Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 15. Again, Matthew 15. We're here for the last few weeks. We'll be here one more time today. We'll be looking at verses 29 to 39. Last week we began by noting how difficult but ultimately satisfying the hard things in the Bible can be. Jesus' seemingly harsh response to the Canaanite woman and her sick girl was just such a difficult thing. How could he act this way? What is he doing? But as it turned out, Jesus finally commended the mother's faith and healed the daughter, thus making this a wonderfully satisfying account in the Bible. Well, such is our text again this morning. At first reading, it startles us. It, it, it's about Jesus feeding the 4,000. Wait a minute. Jesus fed 5,000, right? Uh, and we, did, we just studied that, actually, in the last chapter. What's going on here? Are the critics right? The Bible's full of uh, contradictions? No. Again, this morning, God uses his word to reiterate the things that we heard before. So what we're talking about today is pretty similar to what we were talking about last week and I think it will prove satisfying to our souls. Well, let me read the text, Matthew 15, verses 29 to 39. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, and the crippled made well, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have, a, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me with, with us three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He took the crowd, told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was 4,000 beside women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Megadon. This text, I think, has two truths uh, to teach us. We're not going to talk much about the actual uh, feeding and uh, what that uh, all means. Uh, we, we did that before. But two truths. The first, first is this. Jesus brings the nobodies into God's covenant. Jesus brings the nobodies into God's covenant. Similar to what we heard at the last point, Jesus brings us. Well, this just expands it bigger. Jesus brings lots of nobodies like us into his covenant. One of the biggest controversies in our country right now is immigration. Thousands of people want to come to this land of plenty, and they do, one way or the other. So how should we respond? The conflicting solutions are tearing our country apart. Well, the early church, 
for whom Matthew wrote this account of the life of Jesus, had a similar problem. Gentiles from everywhere were beginning to believe in this Jewish Messiah, Jesus, and laying claims to the blessings of his covenant. Was that right? Was that what Jesus wanted? What were people to think? So Matthew included this, this account to make the point that Jesus is bringing nobodies into God's covenant. That answer is found by addressing the problem which made this a hard text. Did Jesus feed 5,000 or 4,000 people? Clearly the answer is both, two different incidents. We know that because there are a lot of differences. The number of the people is different, 5,000 versus 4,000. The number of the loaves Jesus had to work with is different, five loaves or seven loaves. The number of uh, baskets of leftovers is different, 12 baskets or seven baskets. The length of the time and the hungry, the hungry had been with Jesus is different. One day back in, uh, with the feeding of 5,000, three days in this account. So there are a lot of differences. These are two different accounts, similar but different. But the most significant difference has to do with who these people are. These people were not primarily Jews. They were Gentiles. There's some subtle hints of that in our text. For example, verse 31 they praised the God of Israel. That's the common Old Testament phrase that would be used by non-Jews speaking of Yahweh, Israel's God. It's not the way a Jew would talk about it, praise the God of Israel. But the fact that these were Gentiles is made really clear if we compare this text with Mark's account of the same incident. Mark says, and let me just kind of see if I can... I don't have a map here, so let's pretend this is a map. This is the Sea of Galilee, or the area of Galilee right here, the pulpit is, okay? And this is, uh, this is to the west on your map. It's to the west of Galilee. This is to the east of Galilee. So Jesus went from Galilee up by the coast of the Mediterranean to a town called Tyre. And that's where he met the Canaanite woman, healed her daughter. But then Mark says he went further north up to Sidon. That is well out of Galilee, out of the land of Israel now. Now we assume, our text here says when he was back at, by Galilee, we assume he came back to Galilee. No, you can't assume that. Mark tells us that what he did then was he traveled east, way up here, east, and then he traveled southward down to come back into the area close to Galilee, but on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. This area was called the Decapolis, meaning 10 cities. That area was settled by Greeks who came after the conquest of Alexander the Great. They had their own coinage, they had their own courts, they had their own army, according to the historian Josephus. These may have been, there may have been some Jews there, but these were not Jews. These were Greeks, Gentiles. Those are the people, that's the place where this, is, this miracle happens. So do you see what's happening here? Let's think what Matthew's doing. Matthew's writing to a people, a Jewish crowd after Jesus' resurrection, a time when the gospel was advancing to the whole world and many Gentiles were being saved. 
So having presented Jesus in the earlier chapters as the true king, the true Messiah of Israel, Matthew now shows that this plan to extend the covenant to Gentiles was not some fluke. That was Jesus' own plan. Jesus is the one who not only allowed one Gentile woman to eat the crumbs of the children's from the children's table, but Jesus actually over here in the Decapolis fed those Gentiles the children's food, 4,000 of them. Jesus was bringing the nobodies, the Gentiles, into God's covenant. So what difference does that make? Well, there's several ways that that applies to us. Let me just uh, mention one thing. The church sometimes has difficulty accepting this universal application of Christ's work. In spite of God's promises to Abraham to bless the whole world through his descendants, the first century Jewish church had difficulty accepting Gentile believers. Remember Peter's vision while he's resting on the rooftop and he, he dreams and it's like a big sheet. Somebody holding the four corners comes down and in that sheet are all these unclean animals that you're forbidden to eat. And a voice says, Peter, get up and kill and eat. And Peter says, if I may paraphrase, no way. <laughs> I have never eaten anything unclean. What was that about? The Lord was preparing him because a man was about to knock on his door and ask him to come and share the gospel with an unclean Roman centurion named Cornelius. Even when the apostle Paul had taken the gospel out into the Gentile word and successfully evangelized and planted churches, it wasn't long until a great council of the church leaders was convened in Jerusalem to decide, what are we going to do with these Gentile believers? Are we going to accept them? What do we do with them? They had trouble accepting the fact that Jesus would bring nobody's unclean Gentiles of the world into God's covenant with his people. And you know, just as surely, white middle-class American church has sometimes had difficulty accepting those outside our cultural bounds. But folks, Christianity is not Americanism. It's not white. It's not middle class. Christ Jesus went outside the bounds of Israel, and today he has sent people across every racial and cultural boundary in this world in order to build one church with all the beauty and the diversity of the people he's created, full of nobodies of the world, whom Christ has included in his covenant through the gospel. So if our covenant theology, which is a precious thing for us, if our covenant theology makes it difficult for us to proclaim the blessing of God's covenant to outsiders, then we're out of accord with the Savior. Well, that's exactly what he intentionally did and called his church to do, to extend the blessing of God's covenant 
to the outcasts, the foreigners, the unclean, the nobodies of this world. That's what he promised to Abraham. The whole earth will be blessed through your descendants. That's first truth. Then second truth for us to consider. Jesus loves broken people. Jesus loves broken people. The Statue of Liberty standing in New York Harbor bears these noble words. You know them as well as I do. I remember memorizing them in school. I'm not going to try to quote them for you, though. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shores. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Truth is, this great land of the free and home of the brave, which I love so dearly, has not always been able to make good on that promise and fulfill the needs, let alone the hopes and the dreams of the broken and hurting people who have arrived on our shores. Certainly great acceptance for a lot of years, but not perfect. Oh, but our text tells us that Jesus does. He loves these broken people. How do we know where they're broken? Well, that's how God's word describes them. In Ephesians 2, remember that you who are Gentiles by birth, that's who we're talking about, were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's being broken, folks. Defiled and estranged from the God that made you. That's as broken as you can get. But Jesus loves broken people. We see that in several ways in this account. We see this love first when the lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute are brought to Jesus. There's a curious picture here in verse uh, 30 where it says that the people laid the sick at Jesus' feet. The word that's used there, the word laid, is a word which literally means to throw, to throw away, to throw off, or to cast to the ground. Now, no one thinks that people literally threw their sick friends at Jesus' feet. But the word, the choice of that word certainly does seem to speak of the weariness and the desperation of people bringing their sick and loved ones that they don't know what to do with, happy to leave them with Jesus. And what happens? Jesus loved those broken people and healed them. He demonstrated in his mighty acts that which his message proclaimed, that the bondage of sin and of Satan and death is over, that he, the Son of Man, in whom all dominion, to whom all dominion is promised, has come to exercise that dominion. He is the Lord. Not just, some, not just in some spiritual realm, he is the Lord over all creation. And he loves these broken people. And he fixes what's broken. We see this love again when the people get hungry. They may have brought some food, we don't know, but they've been there for three days. And now 
none of them have anything to eat. But Jesus had compassion on them and said, I am unwilling to send them away hungry. Another little word study here. That word send away has been used several times in recent verses. It's better translated dismiss. So back in chapter 14, the, the disciples told Jesus to, back when there were 5,000 people, dismiss this hungry crowd. But first he fed them. Then he dismissed them. Back in verse 23, the disciple told Jesus, dismiss this Canaanite woman. Her cries were bothering them. But Jesus dismissed her only after he had heard her profession of faith and healed her demon-possessed daughter. This time Jesus seems to anticipate what the disciples will say, will say and, and makes it clear that he has compassion on these people and he is not about to dismiss them while they are hungry. In his commentary on this passage, uh, Dan Doriani uh, concludes this. He says, the disciples always seem to want to dismiss people who have needs and make demands, but Jesus does not. The pattern is consistent enough that it amounts to a policy statement for the disciples and the church. And that is, we do not dismiss people around here. If they're needy, if they're annoying, we take their needs seriously. If we can help, we do. Jesus had compassion. He refused to dismiss broken people because of their needs. We see Jesus' love again and that he actually feeds these hungry people. His disciples don't seem to be so certain about that idea, actually. Their first response is to ask, where can we get enough food in this remote place? That's got to go down in, in history as one of the most stupid questions ever. Did they not remember that recently Jesus fed 5,000 people in a different remote place? Did they not consider that the one they're asking that question of is the one who provided the food? It's amazing how soon we can forget, isn't it? But even more basic than forgetting, frankly, Christians often seem unconcerned about practical things like hunger. We're talk, quick to talk about sin and salvation, and well, we should. That's the message of the gospel. But it may be, be drowned out by unmet physical needs. So the Lord warns us against encountering people with real needs and responding with empty words. Be warmed and fed. And here the Lord Jesus demonstrates what that looks like. To love hungry people, you feed them. Finally, we see the love of Jesus in one more way in that he cares for our souls. These are broken, hungry people who could not have possibly understood the significance of Jesus supernaturally feeding them. When we read, though, the account of the feeding of 5,000, as, as the Apostle John has it in, in John chapter 6, along with the great discourse on the bread of life, 
we understand that there is a deep spiritual significance to this feeding, which we only ever begin to know at all as we celebrate this Lord's Supper together. Taking to ourselves the one who is the bread of life, the bread from heaven. Now some think, this is speculation, but it makes sense. Some think that the disciples may have understood that earlier feeding of the 5,000 as to be a foretaste of the great messianic wedding feast. If so, they could understand why Jesus would feed 5,000 of his coveted people in this foretaste of, 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 of the great beauty of the, of, of, of the eternal church. But to feed this group of Gentiles was, was most inappropriate with that thinking. Folks, Jesus knew the significance of feeding these people more than any of us. And he loved these broken people enough to feed their souls. I would challenge us this morning. Do we really care about broken people? I know we say we do. But Jesus says that on judgment day, some will say to him, some of us will say to him, I'm sorry, some will hear him say to us, I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not welcome me. I was naked, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Don't ever underestimate how much Jesus loves broken, hurting, unclean, outcast people. Or perhaps you are the broken one. Perhaps you realize that you're such a burden to your family that they would dump you if they, if they had an opportunity. Perhaps you've been dismissed so many times by so many people that you assume there's no real compassion anywhere. Along the, lay, the way, you've been lectured and counseled and preached at, but no one listens to your real needs. And food for your soul? <laughs> you've given up food, hope for your soul. You failed so many times, you've broken. Too many laws, you've been broken in so many ways. You've squandered your last opportunity and you can't change. That's being broken. Bad, broken. If that's you, the Lord says to you, a broken and contrite heart, I will not despise. Jesus says to you, come to me, you who are weary, heavy laden. I will give you rest. And Jesus promises, all that the Father gives me will come. 
And whoever comes, I will never cast out. Though it may seem impossible, it is really true. Jesus loves broken people. People like you. Broken people like me. Religious people can get pretty smug. After all, they do a lot of work for the Lord. They give up their money. They volunteer their time. They waste whole evenings in church meetings. So religious people assume God owes them something. Whether they're first century Jews or modern middle caste American Christians. God doesn't play that game. So while the religious are patting themselves on the back, Jesus is bringing the nobodies of the world into his covenant, fulfilling his ancient promise to Israel to bless the whole world. Through one of his descendants named Jesus. So who is worthy to inherit with Christ? To be an heir of God's great promises. Who's worthy? Wrong question. No one's worthy. But Jesus loves broken, unworthy people. Loves us enough to lay down his life to die on the cross to atone for our sins. So that we who have no claim to anything but simply admit our brokenness, abandon the foolish notion that somehow we're, we're going to be good enough and cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus, we will inherit with him eternal life. This is God's promise to you this morning. Father, we sell you short. We reduce what you're doing down to some kind of religious rituals. And we miss the fact, Lord, that you're going after the most impossible, unlikely folks. Not to judge them and cast them into hell, but to bring them into your covenant and call them your own. To adopt them as your sons and daughters broken, hurting, unclean, despicable people. People like us. Thank you for your grace, Lord. May we learn to be gracious. We have received that grace. And Father, if we don't even know what that's about, give us a heart to come running to you. And say, have mercy, Lord Jesus, have mercy. Amen.